And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, February 14th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how Homeland Security determines whether a screening technology can actually work. Plus, everybody expected this fraud train wreck, but that doesn't make it any prettier. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, union bosses and some members of Congress back several bills that could bring big changes for the federal workforce. The American Federation of Government Employees is calling for a bigger pay raise, more paid leave options, and a block on potential future Schedule F. Yep, the union held its annual legislative conference, and Federal News Network's Drew Friedman was there. And Drew, among one of their top priorities is the FAIR Act. Review this legislation for us. This FAIR Act is something that has been around for at least the last couple of years, if not longer. And it basically will offer a higher percentage pay raise for federal employees in 2024. This year's version of the FAIR Act would give federal employees 8.7%. That would be broken down between a 4.7% base pay raise plus a 4% average locality pay boost. This is something that was introduced by Representative Jerry Connolly from Virginia, along with Senator Brian Schatz. And Connolly has been a longtime advocate of this legislation. The bill has never been enacted, though. Typically, you'll see a lower pay raise enacted. So, for example, this year we saw 5.1% was what was included in the FAIR Act, but 4.6% was the actual pay raise that federal employees saw. But this bill, regardless of whether or not it gets enacted, it always gets a lot of support from federal unions and advocacy groups. Everett Kelly is AFGE's national president. Number one is provide federal employees with a substantial pay raise. I mean, you all know that we really believe that federal employees deserve at a minimum of 8.7% pay increase. That's still not going to close the gap, but that's one of my priorities. And that's Mr. Kelly thumping the desk while he's making that point. And another priority is the Social Security Fairness Act. Tell us about the latest on that one, Drew. This is another bill that has been around for quite a while. It would repeal the windfall elimination provision and the government pension offset. These are two provisions of the Social Security Act that reduce the Social Security benefits for feds and their spouses, widows or widowers. This is typically bipartisan legislation, and there was a big push for it last year. It ultimately gained more than 300 co-sponsors, but didn't pass. This year's version of the bill was introduced by Garrett Graves and Abigail Spanberger. There's already about 150 co-sponsors on the legislation. Abigail Spanberger was at the AFGE conference. I know that you all know it, but these two provisions unfairly reduce the Social Security benefits of federal retirees and other public sector employees, and they have done so for nearly four decades. It is not fair, and we are continuing to do the work to get rid of these provisions. And sounds like a little rejoinder in there from Everett Kelly, so (laughs) they're on the same mind there. And Drew Friedman, the Comprehensive Paid Leave for Federal Employees Act, is that another perennial, and what would it do? This is another one that was introduced just last week by Representative Don Beyer, along with Brian Schatz. This bill would give federal employees 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave. This would essentially replace the unpaid 12 weeks 
weeks that they already get under the Family and Medical Leave Act. This paid leave would be available to federal employees after they've been in their jobs for a year, and it would also not cut into sick leave or personal leave. It's notable that this is another bill that has been around for a couple of years. It is bipartisan legislation, and Don Beyer was at the conference as well to voice his support for the bill. We're one of the very few countries in the civilized world that doesn't guarantee full paid leave for their workforce, and especially for our government workforce. But in celebration of the 30th anniversary of the Family Medical Leave Act during Clinton, last week I proudly introduced the Comprehensive Paid Leave for Federal Employees Act. It's bipartisan. It'll be 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave for federal employees. So I wonder what the issue is, because there's enough Republican support to get the House, and now the Senate, we would presume, would go for this, and certainly the president would. Sounds like this one has a good chance this year. It might. It's been around for just a couple of years, so it's possible with support that it will get through, but we're just, it's again just going to be kind of a wait-and-see game on that one. And there's also renewed calls for Schedule F. I think there's competing dueling bills on that particular, as some detractors call it, the politicization of certain levels of of career federal employees. What's the latest there? This is something that has gained some traction this week. We saw the introduction of the Saving the Civil Service Act by Senator Tim Kaine and Representative Jerry Connolly on the House side. This bill would essentially stop any future presidential administration from issuing a type of executive order similar to Schedule F. Schedule F was an executive order from the Trump administration that sought to reclassify about 50,000 federal employees to a new reclassification system, and it would have essentially made those employees easier to fire. Uh, Those who are proponents of Schedule F say that it would offer more flexibility and remove poor performers, but there's also a lot of pushback and criticism of that policy, so it's something that Democrats in Congress are now trying to push back against and ensure it doesn't happen again. And with the Saving the Civil Service Act, there were a couple of changes in this newest version of the bill, where now the Office of Personnel Management would have to approve agency requests to reclassify federal employees, and the employees themselves would have to to consent to the reclassification. So it seems like there's a couple added layers to this bill. This is something that cleared the House NDAA last year, but ultimately was not included in the compromise version. And Representative Jerry Connolly, who introduced the bill, was at the AFGE conference as well. A nonpartisan, nonpoliticized civil service is not a new idea. Protecting that is really critical, and it's a critical part of our mission. We haven't won that fight. I got that bill passed in the House, but it didn't survive the conference with the Senate. So we're going to try again. All right. Thank you. And we won't cease until we win. All right. We heard it from Jerry Connolly, and we should point out by now that uh, Senator Kane has introduced a similar bill in the Senate. So that's percolating and Maybe that could be the death knell this year for Schedule F. Just give us a quick sense, Drew, of the feeling at the AFGE conference. It sounds pretty upbeat, actually. There seems like there's going to be a big push from AFGE union leaders and members just to try to get – these are just a handful of examples of bills – 
on their legislative priorities list, but there was a very strong sentiment of trying to ensure better rights for workers. For example, they talked about trying to ensure that union-covered employees still get um, official time, they get office space to be able to conduct union activities, and the sentiment was just really strong in, in trying to keep that momentum going. Uh, and get some of these these other bills passed as well. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, everybody expected this fraud train wreck, but that doesn't make it any prettier. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The pandemic relief fraud numbers keep piling up. A billion here, a billion there. Was anybody watching? For an overview of what we know now, we turn to the Director of Forensic Audits at the Government Accountability Office, Rebecca Shea. Ms. Shea, good to have you on. Thanks for having me, Tom. And a lot of people are looking at this, certain inspectors general and SIGI and this one and that one. But GAO seems to have kind of done a meta study or maybe a study of your own. And I guess the first question is, which specific programs are we talking about here? The statement was based on some of the quarterly reports and standalone reports that GAO had done over the past three years. So it is a bit of a meta study. And we took those that were focused on fraud and improper payments issues because that was the focus of the hearing. And in the statement, we significantly feature three of the largest programs, Labor's Unemployment Insurance Program, SBA's Paycheck Protection and economic injury disaster loan programs. Uh, But there are many others that are covered in there as well. For example, we've got some information about the economic impact payments from IRS, the coronavirus food assistance program, the CFAP program for farmers and ranchers, child nutrition, restaurant revitalization, FEMA funeral, all of the things that had some fraud and improper payment risks. Yet some of these programs are creatures of the pandemic and were specifically appropriated into life by Congress acting very quickly. And the numbers were not shy, you know, a trillion dollars for this, 800 billion for that. But programs like unemployment insurance go back to the dawn of the welfare state. And you would think that those mechanisms would be long established to prevent fraud. So is there a difference there? There are and were longstanding vulnerabilities in the unemployment insurance program. But there were also the pandemic unemployment insurance program was freshly stood up on top of the unemployment insurance. There were also actions taken to reduce the controls that were used to check some of the standard unemployment insurance claims and then also for the pandemic unemployment insurance claims. So There were existing problems, as you say, and that's one of the things we highlight in the testimony. There have been existing problems, in particular, with improper payments. We've been looking at that for 20 years, and we saw that continue. But then when you have this great influx of funds, and then also, you know, you're asked to reduce some of the controls or minimize some of the controls or eliminate them entirely, those problems are exacerbated. Yeah, actions taken to reduce controls. Why on earth would an agency do that? Was it because of the speed and the need and the just the general political pressure to get that money out into as many hands as possible? Yeah, that is certainly one of the reasons why it happened, the need to get the money out quickly. But some of the things that we feature in the statement speak to you know broader longstanding problems. For example, we highlight the fact that agencies 
had not been making progress on required fraud risk management activities. These requirements were in place since 2016. And had agencies been taking steps to understand what their fraud risks are, have data analytics capabilities in place, when these programs were stood up and they needed to get these funds out quickly, they would have been in a much better position to understand what the risks are have the tools to deal with them on the back end, you know, to understand what tolerance they should have to let the money out quickly, deal with them more of a detection capacity, but they didn't, they hadn't been making that progress. They also lacked some basic internal controls, specifically, again, we could talk about data analytics capabilities to identify and detect fraudulent claims and requests for paycheck protection and other funds. As you mentioned, I think a little bit earlier, we lacked a government-wide data analytics capability. We were one year into the pandemic before the Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence was stood up, and many of the funds had already gone out the door. So the capability to bring a lot of those different data streams together to identify fraud, it wasn't until a year into the pandemic that those were in place. And then also the longstanding and proper payments issue that I mentioned. If you can't manage errors and documentation gaps, it's going to be much harder for you to manage the fraud that happens. Yeah, this is almost like a ship if it leaves and it's minutes off course, you know, not degrees, but even minutes off course. When you leave the harbor, it's only a few feet. By the time you try to reach Hawaii, you're hundreds of miles off course. It sounds like whatever little weaknesses were, were just amplified by the numbers and the speed and the sheer scale of what the nation was trying to do. Yes. We're speaking with Rebecca Shea. She's director of forensic audits at the Government Accountability Office. And do we actually know the extent yet of fraudulent dollars? I mean, there were a couple of figures that exceeded the hundreds of millions mark, and now we're into the billion threshold. Yes, it is a great question. And I really wish I had that silver bullet for you. I I don't. What I can tell you is that there are two, maybe three buckets to think about here when you're thinking about the extent of fraud. And the first bucket are those things that you can unequivocally call fraud. Those are the cases that have been adjudicated as fraud. And those are things that you can count, things that you know have gone through the courts and you can count the number of defendants, the charges, the loss, the restitution ordered. And we've done that. We've counted at this point, over a thousand individuals that have pleaded guilty or were convicted at trial, charges pending against another 609 of those, 779 that have been sentenced as of early January. And then, of course, you know, restitutions ranging from thousands to millions of dollars and prison sentences from, you know, a year of probation to 17 years in prison. And that's going to continue to evolve as more cases are brought forward, obviously investigated and tried. There's a point in time uh, count of the extent of the problem. And it's really important to note with this count that these adjudicated cases are the tip of the iceberg when you're thinking about, you know, all the fraud that could have happened. And that leads us to the second bucket, what you can estimate about the extent of fraud from what is known. And fraud's obviously hidden crime, you know, so some of these estimates are going to be based on limited data. Data isn't always reported or reported in in the same kind of way, and that can affect your estimates. And GAO is working on an approach for estimating from this limited data, but it's got a lot of challenges, but we are working on that. Uh, We were able to develop a conservative estimate for the unemployment insurance fraud that happened, and that's because the states and labor, they have a process for doing a, a sample and estimating the amount of fraud that they have determined from claims. 
And when they did this estimate, they looked only at the standard unemployment insurance. They didn't look at the pandemic unemployment insurance, which we know has much greater fraud risk. And they identified $4.3 billion in fraud. We extrapolated that to all of the unemployment insurance, and that's how we developed the $60 billion estimate. That's a conservative estimate, and we're continuing work to identify a more comprehensive estimate. Yeah, that used to be considered real money, you know, to use the old cliche. And just briefly, I mean, there are government oversight mechanisms. As you say, some of them were late to get their boots on to chase the fraud and so on. Also, the states are partners in a lot of these programs, too. So this is not 100 percent a federal issue, is it? It is not just a federal issue. And there are a number of ways that the inspector general community work with states, the states, you know, work with the programs to recover some of the funds. So, you know, if we're thinking about recovery, some of this is going to come through the court ordered restitution, obviously, you know, that's at the federal level. But there are also, along with that, forfeitures and seizures, but there are some administrative actions that happen as well. And that can happen with the states through administrative recoveries and the SBA OIG and, and Labor OIG have also noted some of those recoveries as well. All right. So in this statement, this kind of meta survey of all of the work that has been done by various bodies, including GAO, you came up with quite a large number of recommendations. And these almost feel like spreading graffiti over Yankee Stadium. There's a lot of it and a lot of places it can go, but you wonder about the impact. So tell us about your recommendations. You know, you can't go through all 374 of them. But what do they basically cover here and who are they aimed at? As you said, we made 374 recommendations to about 26 different agencies. And a lot of them have to do with, you know, efficiency and effectiveness of emergency response and recovery for the pandemic. 38 of them had to do specifically with addressing fraud and improper payments. And, you know, a number of them were directed specifically at SBA and unemployment insurance. And we made those, I'll say in real time, you know, as we were going through the pandemic. And SBA has made some progress on those. Of the eight specifically focused on fraud and improper payments, they have fully addressed or partially addressed eight of those. So there's progress on that. There's some other things that deal with the efficiency, effectiveness that are still ongoing. And 147 overall of that broad 347 have also been fully or partially addressed. So there is progress on the efficiency, effectiveness, and then also on some of the fraud and improper payment recommendations. And then, as you mentioned, you know, this is a lot of recommendations to individual agencies. We need a more global approach, which is why the Comptroller General, in some of our other reports, we've made recommendations for Congress to take action, 19 recommendations for congressional action. We noted 10 of those from the Comptroller General's prior hearing before the oversight committees last year. And a lot of those have to do with these more global issues. You know, we need that government-wide data analytics capability to be made permanent. So we're not, you know, wasting a year getting something stood up again. We know it works. It returns value for the public. We need to reinstate the reporting requirements for agencies' progress on fraud risk management. I mentioned that they were not taking action based on 2016 requirements. The requirement to report on their progress, sunset in 2020. So, you know, if something's not shining, you know, no light shining on it, action is not going to happen. And there are a number of other activities like that that uh, we have suggested Congress take action on to address these things more globally. And at this point, though, the pandemic money is dispersed. So for those specific programs, the government is basically in sue and claw back mode, not prevention mode anymore. Yeah, and that's a great point. That is one of the reasons why 
RGS fraud risk framework and the original requirements for agencies to manage fraud risk is so focused on prevention. You get pennies on the dollar in return, you know, when you're talking about fraud in particular. It is so, so important that we have these upfront controls and we're making well-informed decisions about the fraud risks that we are able and willing to tolerate and have a ready plan for detection and recovery on the back end. When we do you know, need to get the money out quickly, make those decisions, we need to be ready to step in and address that quickly on the back end. Rebecca Shea is Director of Forensic Audits at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the debt limit is causing persistent low-level anxiety for a lot of feds. But first, how Homeland Security determines whether a screening technology can actually work. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Luggage and passenger screening is a complicated applied science. An idea has to be verified before it can be built into prototype equipment for testing and eventual production. For instance, at an airport, determining whether the basic technology can reliably detect what it's supposed to, such as a dangerous chemical, that's the function of the Independent Test and Evaluation Division of the Transportation Security Laboratory, or TSL. The lab is operated by the Science and Technology Directorate of the Homeland Security Department. In the second of this week's series of interviews on location at TSL in Atlantic City, I spoke with the Test and Evaluation Director, Lee Spanier. He pointed out that his crew operates at a stage ahead of where technology moves to production. My division performs the final exam that supports the decision-making for acquisition and deployment of TSA. And systems come in for certification testing, and uh, we conduct that test. I guess there is a gap sometimes between what sounds like a really great scientific idea for purposes of passenger and cargo and luggage screening, but it doesn't always translate into the scale and reliability that's needed in operation. And so it sounds like you determine, your group determines, yes, this is a good-to-go TSA. You can buy it and rely on it? Well, let me clarify. Uh, I don't do the what's called the operational suitability assessment. I do the conformity assessment for detection and only detection. So that's the primary objective of this system. It's a screening system. So we measure its detection capability, not any of the other attributes such as reliability, maintainability, whether the UPS works. Got it. All right. So give us some examples of things that need to be detected and how you find out that if they can be reliably detected. Well, just as a matter of practice, TSA defines the detection standard. That detection standard defines exactly what they expect the system to detect. And what we do is we take that detection standard and convert it into something called the challenge matrix that lists out each of the scenarios, whether the target is in the bag or on the body or in a bottle or in you know any other circumstances. And those scenarios are presented back to TSA. They then authenticate that as an accurate portrayal of their detection standard. And once they've given us the go-ahead, we turn that around and make that into a full test. And so a typical test could have thousands of those scenarios. Give us an example. Well, an object concealed from view on your body, uh, perhaps uh, on your chest, Mm -hmm. on your back, 
on your ankle. Those would be examples of a target concealed on your body. Right. So you need to verify then that that is detectable and can be detected. Yes. Or in bags. They could be the object is concealed in uh, a ski boot. And does the mission extend to knowing what it is that is there or just that something is there that needs further screening? Ah, well, it depends on the system and the CONOPS. So I, I can't give you all the details because I don't know exactly how DSA does it, but I can tell you that for an AIT system, the passenger screening, that's the advanced, advanced imaging, technology. imaging technology, thank you very much, it uses that as an anomaly. It, it is not looking to sort threat items from benign items. It, it is looking for items that are anomalous to your body. And so it requires a pat-down for resolution. Well, what is left to determine? Because it seems like for years they've been able to tell if there's something in your pocket or in your breast pocket or in your back pocket or in your shoe. So what are some of the challenges you're looking ah, at? Now? Well, the challenges that the TSA, and remember, I, I'm just uh, downstream. I do the quality assurance piece of this. Right. The developers are the manufacturers, and they're responding to both our headquarters, Science and Technology, and TSA's sponsorship of their systems. The requirements that I can talk about that are changing are seeking to maintain that detection capability Mm -hmm. but lower the false alarm rate. The false alarm rate is the rate in which resolution is required for by hand pat-down. All right, so every time uh, there's an alarm, it requires a pat-down touch touch rate, in effect. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Right now, one of the challenges is to reduce that touch rate. And that has been reduced significantly, too, hasn't it, over the last several years? It has been shrinking. Uh, the latest technology, which is being trial deployed, has a very significant reduction in that false alarm rate. Right. And what are some of the technologies that can reduce it? I mean, if something's in your pocket, it's in your pocket. What would cause a false positive, say, of something not in your pocket but showing up in your pocket? The technology that is changing, as far as I understand, for these baseline systems, which are in millimeter wave, are based upon advanced image processing and machine learning. So uh, many of those techniques are being applied and with great effect. The same can be said for the computer tomography systems. There's a reduction in false alarm. And so your job is to say, yes, this really is the case because we've independently tested that system that someone else has said Yes, this reduces false positives. Because you don't develop the false positive detection system or the avoiding false positive. You just independently verify that it works? Yeah. So uh, the vendors will come in and claim that they've met the standards and specifications that TSA has defined, and we will evaluate those claims. All right. And just to be clear, I defined target scenarios, so that's one set of tests for detection. Um, but the other half of the coin is uh, false alarm, and we measure the rate when alarms are occurring when in the stream of commerce or a simulated stream of commerce where there are or should not be any targets detected. Got it. And so what form does your work take? I mean, what kind of equipment, gear, and skills are needed to be able to test these things? Well, it depends on the test service lines. I've got seven different test service lines. So in general, most of what we do is create targets Uh, concealed targets, will acquire bags and put in the proper clutter mix in those bags and store those bags for use in testing. For passenger screening, we will acquire temporary hire individuals. We'll train them up. There's a series of uh, qualifications that we obtain for them. Then they're on call 
for testing. So those are the examples of the types of material and personnel that we use. And, right. and there's hundreds of mock passengers that we use for our tests. Yeah, so you have to develop the test methodologies then too, right? Yeah, of course. So that's using the equipment that's being considered. Don't you need that piece of equipment to be able to test that? Of course. So let me back up. So when TSA issues a solicitation, the very first step is the vendor, the manufacturer, will submit a a certification data package Mm -hmm. uh, that provides evidence of compliance. Um, and there's some prerequisite things, uh, certainly electrical safety we don't evaluate, so we require on third-party, their third-party certifications uh, as a prerequisite to us. Um, we'll do an audit of that certification data package, and if it looks like they have sufficient evidence, then we'll welcome them in. They'll install one or more of those units in our laboratory. We'll conduct a test readiness review. We'll get all the preparations together and execute a test, and it could be as little as one to two weeks, or in some cases can take six to eight weeks to conduct a test. And do you send them away disappointed sometimes? I mean, does the stuff generally work when it gets to you? It's interesting. I would say there are very few manufacturers that passed on their first trial. All right, They required a couple trials. I think there might have been one vendor that passed on its first attempt. So, yes. so you're like the fruit of the loom guy. It doesn't reduce false positives. So Lee Spanier says it reduces false positives. Well, it's, I, I'm, not the, I'm not the authority. I just conduct the test. And just to be clear, I don't issue the certification letter. I execute the test and make the recommendations to TSA. They issue the letter. Got it. All, All right. right. And, and just the people that are in your group, what are the types of skills or education requirements? What, are they, what types of people do this work? I don't mean the test subjects, but the people designing the tests. That's an important question that you ask because they're physicists, they're engineers, and they're chemists um, because of the range of test equipment that we're uh, evaluating. So, for example, chemists would be involved in the Raman scatter spectroscopy for bottle liquid scanners. Trace chemists are also involved in the explosive trace detectors, which are IMS, uh, ion mobility spectrometers. Physicists and engineers are involved in CT scanners, X-ray-based computed tomography, and millimeter wave AIT scanners. So a lot of technologies come to bear here. Yes, certainly. What else do we need to know? We do other things for other customers. One of them is we do lots of special excursion tests, things that pop up, you know, individuals that say, hey, how come I'm getting patted down all the time? Why is it? Why am I alarming? I don't have any targets on me. And they have us investigate that. We lead uh, IEEE image quality standards committees. So about half of these are image quality systems or imaging systems, and we've come up with techniques to monitor the quality control of those images. We also work very closely with other nations that want to do the same type of certification processes. So the European Union and other countries in Eastern Asia would like to stand up their own certification processes, so we do something which TSA refers to as international harmonization, harmonizing standards and harmonizing test methods. Lee Spanier is manager of the Independent Test and Evaluation Division at the Transportation Security Laboratory. Tomorrow, we'll hear about how equipment gets its final certification to install. Find all of the TSL interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, that debt limit causes persistent low-level anxiety for lots of feds. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. As part of The Federal Drive's continuing expansion of coverage of pay, benefits, and working conditions for federal employees, today we introduce a new voice. John Hatton is Staff Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, known as NARF. He joins me in studio. John, good to have you in. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And just give us a brief overview of of what NARF is all about. Who's a member? How many members do you have? And so on. Sure. So we have around 140,000 members across the country. We're in every congressional district, every state uh, in the country. Our members are mostly retirees, um, but we have active employee members as well. uh, And people typically start to look at NARF membership as they're thinking about retirement. Now, we welcome people in prior to that, too. But we provide a lot of resources in terms of how to deal with your federal benefits. So, you know, what mistakes not to make when applying for retirement, when to retire, what benefits plans to choose on the health benefits side. So, in addition to our uh, advocacy, we do that benefits advice. Uh, I oversee both of those programs for NARF, both our advocacy and federal benefits. And, and yeah, but our members span basically every agency of the federal government, every branch, both blue collar and professional. Yeah, that was my union, question. Is so. it mostly management, or do you have some of the people that were in AFGE and NTEU, yeah. or just a mixture? We have a mixture. So we have people um, in in both. Really, we have both union and management backgrounds, and so we really focus on government wide policies rather than specific sure. uh, agency based policies, unless it's something that could be a precedent-setting type policy. Yeah, they say the grave levels everyone. I suppose you could say that (laughs) of retirement also. Yeah, (laughs) it does. And among the top issues, I think it's fair to say right now that you're looking at and what federal employees are looking nervously at is the (laughs) debt limit debate, the use of the extraordinary measures. And each time around in recent years, these types of things like government shutdowns seem to take a step further than the last time into unknown territory. Yeah. So first of all, extraordinary measures. The debt limit actually was hit on January 19th. Um, When that happens to prevent default, the Treasury Department implements these extraordinary measures. Now, we often get a lot of heartache from our members about what does that mean because they are using the Civil Service Retirement and Disability Fund and the TSP's G Fund, they're using some accounting gimmicks on those to prevent default for federal government. Right. That's the, a good word, accounting yeah. <laughs> gimmick, because all of the money – I mean, the only real money that's cash is people's TSP accounts. Right. The rest of it is all – like Social Security, it's all just one big smush of money right. that's either in the form of tax receipts or debt. That the government right. generates. Yeah, the Civil Service Retirement Disability Fund is all special issues for Treasury Securities, the same way the Social Security uh, Trust Fund is. And so no one's ever missed a payment on their annuities. No one's ever not been able to take out their money from the TSP um, because of this. And both funds have always been made whole at the end of it. So we don't like the fact that these extraordinary measures are used, but we're not panicking about it. We don't think our members should panic about it. What we're a little bit more concerned about is this being part of a debate over budget cuts and spending cuts that could implicate federal retirement um, and health benefits. Right. and But there's no evidence that will happen yet. But Not yet, but um, clearly there's a push for spending cuts in exchange for an increase in the debt limit. Now, President Biden saying, I'm not going to negotiate over the debt limit. 
But we also have to look ahead to the next fiscal year and really the next two fiscal years and having a budget to provide for federal agency spending. And so there's going to be negotiations over that anyway, which could also lead to spending cuts. And so I'm seeing this as more of a similar scenario as to when sequestration was put in place. And when they wanted to get rid of sequestration, they had to have mandatory spending cuts. Among the ones that are on the table from think tanks are things like eliminating or reducing cost of living adjustments to federal retiree annuities. Right. So people would get you know their basic annuity or get their basic pay. The question is beyond that. Everything's on the table, really. Yeah. We've seen these proposals in the past. We expect to see them again. They're in some leading think tank proposals. They have not been proposed by Congress yet. But you, know, you saw at the State of the Union, President Biden making clear that they don't want to do Social Security and Medicare cuts. And the Republicans were very clear that they didn't want to be for that either. And so when you take those two big spenders off the table on the mandatory side, uh, there's not a lot left. And federal benefits are one of those things that they could get a lot of money for. So whether that becomes part of a proposal and whether it actually has a chance of becoming law are two different questions. But I do think it will be part of the debate. We're speaking with John Hatton. He's staff vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. And another question I wanted to ask you about is your work for COLA's cost of living adjustments, specifically for the FERS retirees. There's many, many, I mean, almost most of the federal workforce working now is under the FERS system. Right. And so that's really, you know, the uh, melon ball has gone through the goose's neck with respect to CSRS for this, <laughs> right. almost. Yeah. So one of the things we're working on is uh, for FERS retirees, when inflation is higher than 2%, they don't get the full COLA. They get um, either 2% if it's in between 2 and 3 or it reduced by 1%. So this year, CSRS and Social Security got an 8.7% COLA. FERS got 7.7%. And now that 1%, oh, it doesn't seem like a lot, but you compound that over time, over the course of your entire retirement, and it could be, just for the average FERS retiree, it's tens of thousands of dollars. And if you have a higher annuity, it's going to be even more than that. So we've been working with some partners in Congress to try to change that. So there's a bill that was just introduced uh, recently this month, the Coca-Cola Act by Connolly and Padilla in the Senate. And so we're trying to push that and try to gain support for that bill. Right. And it's hard to know what the bipartisan support for that really is, because often divided as it is, some Republicans in Congress do come to the side of federal employees and their advocates advocate. Yeah, that's true. There's definitely a subset of Republicans in Congress that are that are good on these issues. Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania has been uh, a lead sponsor of a lot of these bills. And, and so, you know, we're trying to obviously gain as much support as we can and on both sides of the aisle. And um, it's not always uh, an even amount on both sides, but we can get people on the Republican side on board. And an interesting issue which does originate on the Republican side is that so-called Schedule F And there's a bill for that. It's almost in some ways like looking at a nasty orangutan. (laughs) It could really do you harm if it got hold of you. But because of divided Congress, that forms a kind of cage around it. But what's the latest on Schedule F and what's your position, I can guess, on Schedule F? (laughs) Well, we're we're opposed to Schedule F and, you know, that was the – that was created through executive order at the end of the Trump administration to create this large, broad exception to the civil service. And that never really had the time to be implemented then. When Biden came in, it was rescinded within his first week of office. Um, But it's gotten more attention um, on both sides of the aisle 
whether to codify it from some Republicans, from it's gotten attention in the news in terms of bringing it back if a new administration comes in after Biden. So there's been a lot of pushback from NARF, other allies uh, out off the Hill, plus allies on the Hill uh, to try to prevent that from coming back. So um, right now, there's no danger of that coming back. But if there is a switch in administrations, there is. And what we've been trying to do is get legislation passed to prevent that from ever happening. We'll see what happens with that bill. But yeah, I think that's going to be debated. And it's kind of one of those things that's going to rear its head from time to time. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, being reintroduced, uh, I believe, this week, uh, Kane in the Senate and Connolly in the House, um, also with Fitzpatrick on board in the House. There was a push to include it in the National Defense Authorization Act last year. Uh, it did not get in. It did not have bipartisan support. John Hatton is staff vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Personnel vetting reform has been among the so-called cross-government performance initiatives in recent years. The reforms are still in motion, but they're already paying off in one area, how much it costs agencies for security clearance investigations. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. These reforms, these cross-cutting reforms, what are they? How are they working? Give us the background update here, Justin. Yeah, so it's all under Trusted Workforce 2.0, this initiative that really started in the Trump administration and has been carried forward under the Biden White House to update how personnel are vetted, uh, especially using the security clearance background investigation process as a springboard. And the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency has been implementing those reforms, trying to make things faster, more streamlined. They just announced their background investigation product rates for fiscal 2024. And uh, for the third year in a row, costs are going down uh, for fiscal 24. It'll be 18% less than it is for this current year for background investigations across the different tiers of investigations that DCSA provides. And a lot of that is chalked up to continuous vetting, which has replaced periodic reinvestigations uh, using kind of automated data pulls and uh, automated records checks. So that's where they're seeing a lot of the costs going down. It's hard to prove a negative that something did not happen, but do they know how well continuous vetting is actually working? It's still pretty new. Yeah, there's 4.5 million people in continuous vetting now. That's the national security workforce. So military personnel, DOD civilians and contractors. And they're all under that system. They have been for about a year. Bill Leitzow, the director of DCSA, spoke at an event hosted by the Intelligence and National Security Alliance yesterday. And he talked about how continuous vetting is working so far. The benefit that we get from that is that we're finding concerning behaviors or activities or indicia of reliability much sooner than if we were doing it every five year or every 10 year. We've done some number crunching and we're thinking we're finding things about for a top secret about two years before we would normally find it for a secret about seven years before. Last year alone, we referred over 2,000 cases to law enforcement or to some insider threat hub beyond just suspending eligibility for clearance. So we found like things that needed to be criminally prosecuted because of continuous vetting. Well, we know INSA is not in the sound business. And what are the latest numbers on the time it takes to process a background investigation? Because that was always the big problem. Yeah, even with the move to continuous vetting, agencies 
still need to do the background investigations on the front end when someone comes into being employed by a federal government by the federal government or by contractors in the fourth quarter of fiscal 2022 the latest numbers we have it took an average of 76 days to get through a case where someone was applying for a secret level security clearance and then for top secret cases it took an average of 127 days during that same time period it sounds like a long time but obviously those numbers are way down from the peak of the background investigations backlog a few years ago then it was taking more than 400 days on average to get through top secret clearance cases and more than 200 days for secret so those numbers have gone way down and by the way this applies to people applying for contractor clearance also that's right those numbers are pulled from the fastest 90 percent of cases across both uh, agencies and contractors. So there's some outliers that are included in there, but it's the fastest uh, 90%. And DCSA says it's using big data analytics. That's a word that's been around a few years, too, to improve background investigations. What did they mean by that? This is the question that Litsau got during the INSA event, and he had an interesting answer. Uh, DCSA is piloting some tools that could help it look back across all of its data from its history of cases that it's investigated and adjudicated to determine why certain cases turned out one way. So maybe they can be more predictive in the future. Here's Leitzau again. We have ways of using big data analytics to look at all the adjudications we did over a period of time and which ones came out a certain way and what were the things that we might be able to identify as a good indicator that this one deserves more scrutiny than others in ways we wouldn't have known before. We've got test programs that have looked at that. We've been testing different products out there to see their ability to pull data that might be useful. We're still in the kind of investigation stage of how we can best use those tools. Again, that's Bill Leitzow of DCSA. And Justin, there are some proposed changes to the SF-86. That's not a fighter jet of yesteryear, but a form for clearance. And there's a new proposed personnel vetting questionnaire. Did he address that question about reforming that horrible form that everybody hates, SF-86? Yeah, those reforms are uh, already happening. The Office of Personnel Management published a new proposed personnel vetting questionnaire in November in the Federal Register. It's now reviewing the comments it received on that, but that new one essentially consolidates several different forms, including the SF-86, into one questionnaire. It also cleans up some of the language. It makes a number of different changes. One of the big ones is around the questions it asks on mental health. Uh, They've already been changing that in the current SF-86 a bit, but this latest proposal really hones in on things that need treatment or potential hospitalization. They don't want to rule out people or have people rule themselves out just because they went to see a therapist for anxiety, essentially. Bill Leitzow talked a little bit about that as well. DCSA is not in charge of the policy, but it does run the investigations. Here's what he said. What is clear is getting mental health assistance will always be encouraged. The last thing we're going to do is put a set of questions in there that if you reveal that you're getting mental health assistance from a professional, that that somehow hurts you in your ability to clearance. That is what we're going to make sure doesn't happen. It already doesn't happen. That's not a area of concern, but it's an area where there's misinformation out there. So there will be a lot of scrutiny put on the questions that are related to mental health to make sure that we get the right answers that are talking about relevant items and not going off into some kind of a 
fishing expedition for if the person ever had mental health problems. And that's Bill Lietzow, director of DCSA. All right. It sounds to me then, Justin, to summarize all this, they've got their process down. It's a matter of refining it and just keeping chipping away at the efficacy of it and getting it cheaper and faster, but no fundamental change then is further needed? I think what they're doing is they've got their goals in mind, and now they're putting the policy into place uh, along a number of different lines. You see uh, Trusted Workforce 2.0 updates that come out of the uh, Performance Accountability Council from the White House, and there's just a, a list of dozens of policy actions that have happened, are happening, or still need to happen to change this whole betting process across government. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin.